welcome to the Asbury Park Vibes podcast. Asbury Park Vibes is dedicated to sharing information about the live music scene in the Asbury Park area, as well as the bands who have traveled through. We thank you for tuning in, downloading, or just stumbling upon our podcast. So what you're really saying is that None of the roads that you use to get back and forth to work have been smooth in like five years. They've been <laughs> they've been digging up that main street, it seems like, since the dawn of civilization. Yeah, they seem to finally kind of stop. Um, so that's been nice. But yeah. There was a couple nights where between the trains going by and then chopping up the street, I was like, the noise is <laughs> Sure, sure. I, I, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, I drove, I drove home the other night and it was smooth. I thought, I thought maybe something had gone wrong. <laughs> so I can get to Burger King a lot easier now, right? So Doug Drescher for Asbury Park Vibes. My little podcast is called Seen and Heard, and we're very excited to have Renee Maskin with us today. Hi, Renee. Hey, Doug. What's up? Uh, it's just a pleasure to have finally figured out how to contact each other and, and get you to sit down and chat with us. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say of, of, of the people that I've interviewed through uh, Seen and Heard, I think you were the most Asbury-ish person that I'll talk to. I mean, it's your relationship with the city is quite stunning and, and impressive. But, but my first question, and, and I doubt anyone's ever asked you this, but do you have a special name for your hat? No, I don't. I do. Um. Do you have a large hat collection? Because that's become. I mean, that on the days that you've gone out, and I see on Facebook that you don't have a hat on. It causes like a ripple effect of people freaking out that they've seen the top of your head. What is this mystery with the the magnetic power of the hat? Well, I'm not bald. I'm just crazy, you know. But um, I do like the hat. I think it fits my nature. I want everyone to look at me, but I want a circumference around my face. Don't get too close, you know. Um, it, it draws attention, but I can kind of hide in it. And then it's nice if I want to go out and not. Uh, you know, if I'm doing a chore if I'm with my family or something and I just want to be mellow, I can just leave the hat at home. And, and people don't recognize. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. And now, I, I've seen Low Light play quite a few times, and we'll certainly talk about Low Light and, and some of the uh, solo projects. But when I was thinking about what I'd want to bring up while we're chatting, you know, we've had five or six conversations. We've geeked out about guitars. You know, I love your... Uh, uh, that black guitar with the P90 pickups, whatever the yeah, yeah, the, the Reverend, yeah. the Reverend, nice guitar. My friend just bought a Reverend for himself. But you're also like a really elusive figure. You know, I I could tell you right now that I know almost nothing about you, <laughs> and and we're gonna we're gonna solve this mystery. This sort of it's almost like a 18th century poet who left these reams of writing but we don't have any biographical background as to how to put it into context anyway so uh low light has been both active and not active during the uh, pandemic you've signed with mint 400 records why don't we why don't we start there how did you end up signing with 
with I, and I love the label. I love the bands that they have. Um, I begged the Vaughns to chase the owner of Mint Four Hundred uh, down to get them to sign, uh, but I don't remember who the Vaughn signed with. How, how did you end up on, on such a cool label? Well, um, Neil, who runs the label, uh, reached out to me a while back, um, talking about solo stuff, and um, we talked about it. But you know, I, I've been very busy with Lowlight and with um, you know my, my day job and keeping this place uh, running uh, where I live. So it was a slow burn kind of conversation, um, mm-hmm. and then Lowlight was kind of ready to put out a record uh, with that. We worked on over the pandemic and then um you know i'd already talked to neil and they had kind of separately said like well what's up with mid 400 and i was like well i got the load down if you want to talk to neil you should talk to me too and uh we all signed so 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 you negotiate for yourself as a, a solo artist and then the whole band decided that mint 400 was the right it was weird how it happened um it happened separately like yeah. i had i had a whole conversation with neil that like was completely separate from Roy. And then um, they kind of, on their own, was just like, what's up with this Mint 400? Sure. Oh, that's <laughs> and, interesting. Yeah, and they actually had some conversations with uh, Brian Eric and a couple of other people on the label, and they were like, you know, let's talk to Neil. So. Sure. And I know, you know, in the before days, I guess it would be about three years ago, Mint 400 put up, they did, uh, was it at the White Eagle Hall, that sort of cavalcade of New Jersey stars? that had something to do with Mint 400, and, and I'm fairly certain you must have played there, otherwise I must be dumb. We weren't on that one. Oh, but, well, uh, well, I'll cut that out of the interview. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so what's going to happen with, what happens with Low Light uh, now? You have a record label, you're, you recorded, uh, you may be the only indie band that also has a craft beer, interestingly. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, your new single is My Going Away Party? That was, yeah. I, and since then, um, last Friday, uh, we kind of released a 15-minute long uh, mixtape. Uh, you know, uh, but that mixtape is a little outside the normal low-light box of listening to. I, I felt like peyote may need to be uh, used to fully <laughs> to fully explore. I don't, know, I don't know if you're wrong, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That came about, uh, Ray, our bass player, um, before he joined Lowlight, was um, a DJ and kind of more in hip-hop stuff, and he sure. beats, and he made that mixtape, and it, when it was first delivered to us, it was just beats, um, and then uh, the band had the idea to try to expand upon that and actually turn it into more of a record. Kind of so did you, uh, did the band members send each other like stems and you load it into your logic or pro tools and do your piece and then send the files to someone else? Or did you meet together to actually produce something? They were all meeting together. I wasn't because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was one of the people during this whole time that was extremely nervous. So I was delivering some to them with vocals and guitar parts and things sure. like that. But, uh, but they were getting together. Uh, and now, are you going to be recording a separate and new album to celebrate your uh, record signing? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm working on my solo record. Uh, okay. Yeah, which will hopefully be out either by the end of the year or early 2022. And uh, Low Light's still going through the release of um, this current record, Strange Light, which will be out August 13th. Friday the 13th. And Strange Light. And I'd, I'd imagine you'll be playing some shows for that. We're not sure yet. We're figuring it out. Um, oh, yeah. for God's sakes! Would you play already? I mean, I haven't uh, haven't seen a good show in a while. I, I I mean, the saint seems safe enough to go out, and and if you wear a mask and the hat, all we'll know about you is your eyes moving back and forth. So that'll be. It's, it's actually, I'm turning more and more into a Mortal Kombat character. Yeah, you yeah. should wear like ninja vest and have swords on your back. <laughs> right. Um, I'm sure anybody who ever interviews you asks this, but I'd be remiss. So, how, how did Low Light? Uh, come to be, you know. It seems like you've been an Asbury band for a really long time. But what's what's the twenty five cent tour of of how this band started and, and and how you built your reputation of being such an enjoyable band to watch? Oh well, thank you. Um, well, I had been living in Brooklyn. Uh, I moved there after college, thinking that that was going to be a place for me to build upon a music career. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to even just get a decent gig. And then I started hanging down here in Asbury Park and going like, well, there's a lot of venues and there's a scene here and it, it's pretty vibrant, you know. And I've always wanted to live by the beach, so I moved here. 
Where did where, can I ask where did where did you grow up? I grew up in Metuchen, which is not near the beach. It's probably closer to New York Airport than anything else. Yeah, it's uh, you know the Edison New Brunswick area. My, sure. my father's side uh, were old New Brunswick family, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, but we always we, we would go to the beach. We were the Bennies. We'd go to the beach every time. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, and then I always I loved. I mean, besides music, my favorite activity is ocean swimming. So. You know, when I kind of started hanging in Asbury, I'm like, there's music here and the ocean. Like, what am I doing? So, it called to you. Yeah. Um, and then as I moved, um, I started recording. Me and Daryl had gone to college together, but didn't know each other. And uh, which school is that? Ramapo. <gasps> I'm a Ramapo graduate. Oh, there you go. Alumni. <laughs> yes, yes. Alumni. Uh, fi- for me, it was five years of the finest undergraduate school that I can almost remember. Yeah, about the same for me. <laughs> five years of whatever that was. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I had five majors and took almost every class. Loved every minute of it. I, I think. Yeah. I met, I, I'm, and, and I mean, it doesn't mean it mattered anybody else, but I met my wife there, so it was pretty oh. cool. My twin brother met his wife at Ramapo College. There it is. It's magnetic. Yeah. <laughs> So at Ramapo, were you were you a singer songwriter in bloom there as well, and then brought that to Brooklyn? Realized you can't actually grow a Brooklyn beard as as a woman, and then decided <laughs> to move to Asbury. Um, well, I was actually playing in a progressive rock band, which was my band from high school into college, and then that band broke up. Um, and then I moved to the city, and sort of maybe me moved to the city and started writing country songs. Um, and then kind because of, the country influence runs deep and wide in Metuchen, in New Jersey, right? Well, yeah, we got the roadside graves. We got all kinds of people. You know, yeah. Metuchen's a pretty—it's a two square mile town full of a lot of artistic people. It's actually kind of a wild place. Is is there a quick ride into Manhattan that the artists move there? Is that the connection? Yeah, I lived. I grew up. Um, you know, a fifteen minute walk from the train station. There. Sure. It's sure. A, so, as a smaller Renee Maskin uh, growing up, uh, did 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 you realize, or or at what age did you realize that you have this? And I always sort of refer to it as a gift and an albatross all at the same time. When did, when did you realize that music had this connection that didn't seem to happen to the people around you necessarily? Um, early. I remember having an old, like a little Casio keyboard. Um, and figuring out like jingles that I heard on commercials on the keyboard and then understanding that I was musical. Mm-hmm. And then 13, I uh, decided I wanted to take guitar lessons. Um, and, and, and what were you, what was your uh, parents thought of this? They encouraged activities. I mean, my brother was into sports. Um, when I was a little kid, I was an art major at Ramapo. When I was a little kid, I figured out how to draw. Mm-hmm. And I would just sit at the table for hours just drawing things to the point where, like, my parents were like, we can't save all this shit, you know? <laughs> so it became very not precious in a way that I think is actually useful uh, as an adult. But um, so I've always been musical, very artsy. And then 13, my second guitar lesson, they taught me how to play a power chord. And the first thing I started doing was writing songs. That's, mm-hmm. I, got, I went home and I've got this one shape these fingers and I just started writing songs they weren't good but it was like immediate I knew exactly what I wanted to do intuitively you know and now did did your parents have such like was there music going on did they did they introduce you to something special that maybe other kids didn't have a chance to hear you know my parents um, like music but they're not music heads Mm -hmm. Um, I'm kind of the anomaly uh, in the family I'm shocked by this Renee (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know but my parents are really just great wonderful stand-up cool people and always encouraging and it's, it's funny when we had that pretenders thing my parents were having a garage sale so I was selling some stuff and my mom was telling everyone who was coming to this garage sale on the pretenders I was like you need to turn this down and off <laughs> no way I mean uh, 
Well, we'll we'll get to that in a minute. I, I uh, so so you finish up high school, you go to Ramapo, you're in a some sort of progressive rock band. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there opportunities to play at Ramapo? I know when when I rented Ramapo, we used to sign out the multi-purpose room and and put on noise shows. And I was I was on the radio station, the fine WRPR, and and uh, they put up that band shell years after I graduated. So there must yeah. be an opportunity to play. Yeah, well, there was some. You know, we had a couple opportunities. It wasn't nowhere near like the opportunities I have now. Sure. You know, but there there was some. Um, but back then, you know, the Court Tavern, we were playing there all the time. We were playing the Brighton Bar when Jacko was booking it. Sure. Now, were you playing upstairs or downstairs at the court? Downstairs. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, a couple of solos upstairs. A solo gig upstairs. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I I I loved. I love the original version of the Court Tavern. It's it seems to have tried to resurrect itself a few times, and it just can't get a, enough steam to to keep open. I think from the last I've heard, they're not really doing shows anymore. No, nah, it's it's yeah. sad because it's a college. That, well, it's it's a typical problem. It's a college town where you have all these kids who want to enjoy live music, but they're not twenty one. Right. And it's it and it's a real liability to go see to for for a venue to let minors in even though you put the big x's on their hands you know one drunk kid who's 17 18 a freshman in college gets themselves in trouble and and it and you know you can lose the whole gig there yeah it's just you know it's unfortunate like um there are some other smaller bars with no stage that were putting on shows but um you know and, and frankly i'm too old for the basement scene yeah know? i was gonna say now there's a huge uh, DIY basement scene all over New Brunswick of the kids who moved off campus and rented houses. I'm in my, I'm in, I'm on the other side of my mid fifties, and there's no way I'm going to get arrested in the basement of somebody's house in the middle of New so, Brunswick. I mean, that's it. I mean, the, the Prague band we played basements. Um, yeah. There's one called the Parlor. We played there all the time, and I remember people. Swinging themselves over amps. <laughs> I remember this one band. This one guy was burning a Bible in his basement. And I'm um, now, you know, being an older person and like walking down some of the stairs of places in New Brunswick, I'm like, this is a fire hazard. The minute that is the first thing in your mind is the, the oh come on, even the basement. And and I love the venue. I've I when I was in a band, we played there a few times. Uh, I've seen some great shows there. My friend's band, uh, the Selves, seem to play there all the time. But the basement of the Court Tavern really is a giant mass grave waiting to happen. Yeah, at least it had two two exits. Yeah, <laughs> two exits, and and honestly, uh, the only grosser bathroom that I've ever seen in my life was at CBGB's. Yeah, it was the most disgusting place on the planet. Yeah, I'm sorry, the train's coming. It's by. okay. We oh, like the train, but uh, the beer the beer was cold and cheap, and the music was good. And I saw, and they they catered to a, a pretty eclectic crew. You could see a pop band, or you could see a hardcore band. Yeah. You live with that every six minutes, right? Yep. That's too funny. <laughs> so so you landed in Asbury. So you got your you got your acoustic guitar and 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 one one amplifier, right? So. You landed in in Asbury, then, and then how did uh, Low Light come about? Well, you know, yeah, Low Light was starting up. You know, um, our mutual friend put me and Daryl in touch because I was just recording stuff. I wanted to record stuff. And so he was like, do you remember Daryl from Ramapo? And I was like, well, I had a class with him, but we weren't friends, you know. And then I started hanging out, and then we, um, as we made that little recording, which I don't know if I even really put out, um, but we kind of were like, oh, we like, we're enjoying each other's company want to try to start a band and um colin the drummer i've known since i was five and uh is is he a is he a matuchinite he is okay yeah. uh he grew up a, a couple blocks away from me okay uh, and uh yeah it pulled him in and originally we had a different guitar player tony who moved down to nashville which mm-hmm. is where he should be and he's pulling it down there and um our friend ray came in and that was it you know that's fantastic and and uh, how many? How long ago was that sort of first low light rehearsal? Would you say? Uh, about six years ago, I want to say. So you've been plugging away for quite some time with low light. Yeah, six years is a pretty good run. Yeah. yeah just, well, a couple more, you would have beat out the length of the Beatles. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's what I find interesting for me. Uh, 
because of course I'm the center of my own universe anyway. But when I listen to to music, I try to figure out where the inspiration comes from and 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 some of the influences. The one thing I've noticed about all of Lowlight's music is, even if you hear a song for the first time, it's like you've always known that song. That song has always been in your head. It's such a familiar and warm feeling. Mm. What are the influences that you find inspiring that you try to morph and put your own signature on? Well, I mean, there's so much. I mean, that's a compliment. I think if you can write a timeless song, that, that might be the ultimate compliment, you know? It, it's It's a... It's a very comforting, warm feeling because, you know, I'm like, well, I know I didn't hear the song before or or maybe it's a live version, but I feel like I've known it my whole life. The, the only influence that I can find to try to connect is at times I think you guys sound a little like Mazzy Star, which is OK with me because, you know, they, they're. I know the one song that everybody loves, but that song is so amazing. You know, yeah. if that was the only thing they ever did, that would be more than I ever did. So, well, so who else do you find inspiring? Well, I mean, I get Nazi Star a lot. I think my voice kind of lends itself to certain performers, too. But, um, uh, you know, and Dylan, I can't say enough about Dylan. I mean, but who can't, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, but I'm all over the place. Uh, Dylan Bowie... Um, you know, Prince. I guess you know older, older, older school people. Now, the other members in the band. What would be an, an influence, or what's the kind of music that they like that we might find surprising, based on the kind of music you produce? Well, all of us like all kinds of things. Sure. I mean, you know, it's like we're, especially our older records. It's like a lot of country influence that we were on the road listening to Can and to you know, you know, and to. Yeah, you know, all that kind of stuff, and, and like Ray comes from hip hop land, so we're listening to you know all that stuff, and uh, yeah, we're a little all over the place. Sure, you know. Do you find now that uh, as the band gets older, there's other responsibilities to sort of take in mind? So, uh, how do you keep a band together as people get their careers on track? And I'd imagine. Potentially one or two of them have families that they have to feed periodically, or at least a cadre of cats and dogs. How do you how do you keep this moving forward as the world, the responsibilities sort of close in on you? You know, it, it's a it's a constant question. I was actually um, just jamming with my friend uh, Mike Nordsey, who's a fantastic bass player who plays Nasdaq. Like, sure, he's also an excellent guitar player. Mike is great, and I've known him for a long time, um, and uh, it's cool that he's been coming over to jam. But, you know, I was just saying to him, like, I'm afraid to get cats because, you know, it's like I'm going to pick up and go on tour and leave these cats alone, you know? And I know cats are, you know, they're, they can deal with being on their own for a little while, but I'm a little... I found a group of people that is willing to... Uh, not get cats involved or something, you know? Sure, <laughs> or just, sure. And they even have them, but they, you know, it's just like, you know, the sacrifice you have to make. And, right? and, you can't just... And, and are, are you guys starting to look at the the map and try to figure out where it's going to take you next over the next year or so? As the, apparently, COVID's all better now, unless you go to Missouri or Florida or Montana. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, New Orleans and... October and I'm a little nervous although they're saying that maybe we won't need the booster shot which makes Now sense. are you going as a performer or uh, as a band? I'm just going for fun. Uh, okay. But, um I was supposed to go before the pandemic and like the week of lockdown was the week I was going to fly out and That was that was a pretty easy decision to cancel, right? <laughs> well, and I'm a germaphobe. So it was funny when this thing started happening. I was like, I'm not getting out. <laughs> so I was very thankful that United Airlines is, you know, it was like, well, we keep the voucher for next time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going on tour solo. Uh, yeah, let, let, let's talk about that. Um, uh, does, the, I, I mean, the first obvious question for me is, this, does, does the rest of the band mind you doing that? Or do they like taking a little time off and retooling and doing their own things as well? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't really know. You know, I'm going to do my thing. <laughs> so so when you write a song, how do you know it's a Renee Maskin solo tune as opposed to something that you're going to bring to the whole band? 
Um, well, I've always been sort of conscious about our palettes. Um, and there's a couple of songs that I've written that I'm just like, you know, I don't know if this is going to translate well for me uh, through the filter of low light, which they always translate something, they, they translate everything into something interesting. But sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, I want this to live in a certain place that I don't think they're going to take it to. Which is fine. We've got plenty of other materials. <laughs> oh, sure. Now, uh, would you? are you the principal songwriter or how does... We'll come back to your solo uh, record and stuff in a second, but how does the songwriting process happen with the band itself? Uh, it happens differently. Uh, sometimes somebody has a group of chords, and in my case, a group of chords and a group of lyrics. And, mm-hmm. um, well, do, and you, do you write primarily on an acoustic and then bring it to the band? Um, when I'm writing, yeah. But they'll write stuff, too. And, you know, sometimes it's Dana on the keys, sometimes it's Ray with his beats. You know, um, uh, it, it happens differently in different ways. Mm-hmm. But then I'd imagine everyone has, everyone brings their own piece to that, and, and then the song comes. Uh, so so you write some songs, you decide this isn't really, this doesn't fit the way I hear low light performing. Uh would you say, like, when you go on tour, are you going to have other musicians, or is this just a woman and her guitar kind of tour? For now, it's just, just me and a guitar. Um, and, you know, like, um, me and Nordsy are jamming, and I've, I've got it in my head, yeah, you know, spread my wings a little bit and jam with some more people. But this particular time around, it's just me and a guitar. And I'm going out with Brian Eric, so he's going to have his guitar mm-hmm. and own sets, too. Now, could Mike Nordsey bring his upright bass? Because there's nothing nicer sounding uh, than an than an acoustic upright bass like that. You know that. what? If I could pull him away from his gigs, I'd bring him. But he's booked out for the rest of the summer. Sure. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm trying to think how. Uh, what else? To, uh, tell me about how you ended up with a craft beer. Um, so our former label was uh, Telegraph Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, who is a major player in Asbury and it, everything Asbury. Asbury is is that the f- foes of Fern guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, Matt for Nicola. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and his crew um, and Joe and uh, they are friendly with the Twin Light Brewing Company and we just they just had this idea like what if we collaborated on something? Did and, you have any input on how the beer tasted? They asked us what kind of beer we liked. <laughs> and we sent them some songs and some titles. Some beer songs. Some beer songs. Well, none of us. Are they all beer songs? Are none of them beer songs? Uh, but, uh, yeah, we sent a couple of titles of songs and then sent the songs. And we're like, these are, we think they're cool titles for a beer and maybe like the vibe of the song. So they chose Voyager. Okay. Um, and then... They gave us like a list of like what kind of beer might you like, and we we're like, we like these beers, we like these beers, and that's how it came. And it was just fun. And then we made a playlist, and you could scan like uh, the code on the beer and get to the playlist. It was cool. So, so if we go to the brewery, can we actually like track an album and drink a different beer for each song? Well, I, I, th- I think if we do that, you should get a t- <laughs> you should get a t shirt at the end of the event that I drank the entire low light record. It's a long playlist. Oh no! Oh, that that would that. Well, we we better order some chips and uh, salsa, right? Uh, how did the Pretenders thing come around? Uh, I mean, you can't make it up. Uh, somebody from the Basie had seen us playing a lot and working hard, and and liked our songs and liked our sound, and um, thought. That I, I think I reminded uh, this person of Chrissy Han because I curse a lot and, <laughs> and all that stuff. And I, but the, the cursing a lot doesn't it's it doesn't fit in with the overall general sort of aura that you give off as you know this sort of. I mean, I don't know if you do or not, but there's I have this vision that you should be riding a horse with an acoustic on your back, slung <laughs> around, and you know barefoot in the Midwest, right? <laughs> I mean, that sounds fun. I do. I curse like a sailor. It's good, like, good. It's authentic. It's a bad habit, but it's what I do. But you know, we got an opening slot for the Pretenders at the Basie, 
purely out of like somebody who I didn't know that we didn't know was at the time was just like we like you would you do it and like well, yeah um, so let, let let me let me see the scene here the phone rings mm-hmm. and someone says would low light be interested in opening for the pretenders yeah and of course like we lost our minds were you were you like <laughs> is were you like is this like a prank I knew it wasn't a prank. Uh, um, because the person was legit, you know, but I was I was definitely like what kind of question is that? Yeah, we're gonna open the <laughs> Sure. So, um we did and then where it gets a little bit like Hollywood kind of like you can't write this story is that Oh do tell. <laughs> well they went they were at um they were coming back, they were coming back to Terminal Five in New York. And um, their manager was trying to get, like, was trying to pitch, like, let's get, like, some old school punk band to open and blah, blah, blah. And Chrissy was like, get that band from New Jersey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then so we opened for them at Terminal 5, and then they went on a tour. And um, it was asked if we could come on tour and just open for them. And they were like, yeah. I mean, it was, like, crazy. <laughs> so how many gigs did you do with the Pretenders in total? I think about seven or eight gigs. So wow. it was a tour, but I mean, an intense, great tour. Yeah, but know? Terminal 5, when that's crowded, I mean, is that the largest crowd you've ever played in front of? Because that's got to be cool. It was super cool. I can't, you know, at the when we played in Boston, that was packed. Um, and then uh, we did see her now, which is also packed. So it's hard to say which one was the biggest. Oh, wow. But so I, I think the... See her now would be cool, except you probably had to go on relatively early, yeah. which which means the sun's in your eyes. And, and and I'm sorry, I don't think you can rock out before 7 p.m. <laughs> you know, like a 2 p.m. gig outside. I think that's a hard gig to to pull the crowd in. <laughs> I can't remember what time we played. Yeah, we rocked out though. There was a lot of people. It was fun. Sure. And then. Um, See here now is when we played the big stage, and then we pulled our gear into the um, the Clinch art tent, and we sure set in there. That was a really fun, beautiful weekend. Well, you know, over the years, Danny has really sort of put his stamp on Asbury Park uh, and the See Here Now Festival. I don't know if I'm excited about being outside in the sand with 30,000 people. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, frankly, I mean, I am not. As a, a spectator, uh, festivals were not my jam. And yeah. if I had not been involved with the show and didn't have places to go hide, sure, it would have been a lot for me. I like that they let people in and out, that you can leave and stuff. I, I think that's helpful. But it, yeah. was, it was packed. And there were just moments where I was getting really claustrophobic and I could just run into the band area and just sit down. Was it air-conditioned for you, at least? It was air-conditioned, yeah, yeah. Baby played with that little trailer, you know, and there was one day I was really hot, and I kind of stumbled up somewhere, and um, Tim Donnelly was like, do you need a water? <laughs> so, <laughs> a water how about a water and a Xanax? That, yeah, get- you know, like, it, you know, so, like, I, I had these little hidden pockets that I'm with you. I find as a, as a uh, concert-goer those situations to be a little more stressful than I want them to be. Sure. I'm I'm much happier in a smaller venue where I can see the exit than a larger venue. And and as I've gotten older, uh, in my younger Ramapo days, um, the drinking age in New York was only 18 while the drinking age in New Jersey was 21. Mm-hmm. So uh, we used to drive into Manhattan all the time to see hardcore shows and punk rock shows. Uh, and looking back, I, I I don't know what I was thinking because I, I certainly wouldn't I, I couldn't be in a crowd of people like that now. And I and I like taking pictures at hardcore shows, but I like smaller venues where I know how to get out. Yeah, yeah. Like I was saying, it's like you turn into an adult and suddenly you're looking for you. All of a sudden, all you want out of life is a clean bathroom and a place to get a diet soda, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. What was the first record that you purchased with your own money? Yes. Um, Ace of Base. When I was, uh, I guess, thirteen, that was like a hot, a hot record. <laughs> did, did you watch a lot of MTV at the time? I didn't have cable. Um, how, how did you live without cable? That's my parents they didn't want to play. <laughs> that's that's a crime. What was it about that band or that song that you liked at the time? I liked the keyboards. I mean, it was catchy. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I really. So, like you were asking me before, like 
put my parents into music. I really, and my, and my brother's my twin brother. I didn't have like an older sibling to show me around. My parents like music that are not deep divers, you know, and I really had to find my way. So I started with basically. <laughs> and then, you know, like, and, and, and got into like punk rock as most high schoolers do. And then joined, got really into David Bowie, joined this prog band. Um, and it's been like a whole journey my whole life, just finding the sure. Now, can I ask, did your twin brother attend Ramapo with you? He did. Isn't that just a little freakish? Well, we had a conversation about it. Because I got, I um, was accepted first. Okay. And then he got accepted second. And we were just like, okay. But we weren't like those twins. You know how some twins just are connected at the hip? You don't, you don't have that sensation? We hated each other until we were in college. Okay. And then something happened, and he was like, "Oh, my sister has my back. This is great." And uh, and now we've we've been buds ever since. But it oh, that's fantastic! That, it wasn't that weird twin thing where we had to do everything together. Sure. Like, we were just like, I guess. Your parents must have been happy that they could pick pick both of you up for the holidays without having to go to another college. Where we were, yeah. I mean, they never picked us up. We were driving, but yeah, you know. Well, let's take it to the next step. What was the uh, what was not something that your parents took you where you, they dragged you along to like the blueberry picking festival. What was the first show that you paid money for a ticket to see and where was it? Oh God. Um, they don't hold up. Uh, but the offspring at Roseland. Um, okay. That's a band that I loved when I was a teenager and I, I tried to listen to it kind of fairly recently. I was like, yo, this is not hold up. This is there, there's, <laughs> there's, music, you know. They're still making music. Yeah. Um, and what I find interesting about The Offspring particularly is in the age of the Me Too movement, some of their songs are really not very pro-woman-y thing. They, they got some weird tunes in that catalog of theirs. That was the 90s. You know, that- <laughs> I mean, you know, my favorite band when I was a kid was something like and let, that's what was, I didn't catch that. It was who? Sublime. Okay. You know, it's funny. I was um, hanging out with a friend in Asbury the other day, and they were playing Sublime on the, the speakers. And I was like, they actually do hold up. They got so overplayed. You know, to, they just got played. But um, they weren't bad. They were, it, the songs hold up. Um, but things that flew in the 90s would not even kind of stuff. Me and Mike Nordsey were talking about the Misfits, and uh, he... I think I agree with him. It's like they might be the best pop band ever. <laughs> but you couldn't write those lyrics right now. You know, people would be like... No, and, and I think it's criminal that they sometimes still dress the way they did 40 years ago. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 I was never a big Misfits fan, but probably less now than, than ever before. Yeah, well, times have changed. You know, it's dated now. So. Well, well, thank God it's changed a little bit anyway. Um <laughs> That's too funny. Um, as as our culture in the United States becomes sort of polarized, where we're both amazingly progressive and frighteningly reactionary, what's it been like fronting the band as a woman? Do you find you get treated differently, or or when you're on a bill with other bands, do they take do they treat you guys the same way they treat bands fronted by uh, men? I don't know anymore. You know, I, that's an interesting question. I think I felt that more when I was younger. Um, and in the past few years, I don't really feel like I'm being treated differently, but maybe I'm being naive or something. Um, people tend not to fuck with me. Uh, it's it's a little funny. It's uh, the hat. It's the mysterious hat. Yeah, I don't know what it is because I'm a pretty quiet, uh, nerdy weirdo. But it's funny, some of the drama that happens around me and people don't necessarily fuck with me. And I don't really know what that is. Um, you know, it's a hard question for me to answer. It depends on who I'm talking to. You know, of, of course, sometimes people talk down to me because I'm a woman, but then sometimes people talk down to men. You know, like, I don't know. You, you don't find sometimes, like, when the gear stops working, people start mansplaining how to plug your guitar into your amp? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I... I yeah, of course. But. but 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 I think, and I said this to uh, uh, analyze from the Vaughns. So I and I absolutely love the Vaughns. I think, 
I think part of the success is that you present yourselves as singer-songwriters. There's so many bands that lack a certain amount of talent where the woman singing up front is quite literally 90% naked. Yeah. And, and I think that that creates a scenario where I think club owners and sound guys and audience members think that they can demean the band because in some ways they sort of demean themselves. And I think the fact that you front a band and you have that certain confidence to you, I think it really goes to the fact that, you know, you're just a singer-songwriter and you're not going to get fucked with. Yeah, you know, but I, I kind of, you know, I was a kid, I was bullied, I wasn't popular, um, I wasn't looked at as one of the pretty girls, you know, and I found music as a way to um, lift myself up because I was pretty decent at it, and mm-hmm. people recognize it, and art too. So by the time I was hitting the stage, it wasn't like, oh, I have to look cute for these people, you know, I bet that was never what it was about. Sure. Um so maybe that's helpful for me. Sure. Um, ultimately, how did you get through the pandemic? How did you keep yourself occupied? You Other than a mixtape that sort of freaked me out when I first heard it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of clawed my way through. I, didn't, I did not have a good time. Um, I, so many of my friends were just like, well, we, we liked it. Let's sit home and watch Netflix. And I was pretty miserable for you. Were you able to keep working from home? Yeah. I mean, and, and I work, my day job is for the news, and the one thing that didn't stop <laughs> for the past two years it, is it, it, it just gets more and more each day, right? Yeah. So, you know, I was able to keep my job, keep the money coming in. Um, I learned how to record. I mean, there's a couple of things that happened during the pandemic that I could shine a light on and go, like, well, that could be a positive thing. You know, this. I learned how to record myself. And, uh, and what software are you using for that? I'm using Reaper. Okay. Um, and uh, I, one of my pandemic purchases was a very fancy custom microphone. I was going to say, did you get yourself a good mic? I did get myself a good mic. Good. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, you vocal people, it's very important to have a good mic. Otherwise, you're going to sound like you're singing in a can. I know. Um, <laughs> this is what I look like. Um, the microphone that I purchased, uh, Daryl, who's been recording me for all the records, Daryl was he every time we done a record, he like would test the different microphones and be like, well, "Which one do you like?" And then this this is the one I always like. So I was like, "What is that microphone?" All right, geek. Let's geek out for a second. Which mic did you buy? It's David Perlman. It's right up here. It's the um, I forget the model number, but it's a David Perlman microphone. Custom. Okay, so that makes you have you have a special case for it. Yeah, it came with a little flight case. And, sure. Uh, I, have it, I just have it set up. I've been. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm, I live in a, a like a studio apartment. Yeah, I was gonna say it looks long and skinny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so I'm I'm sitting in the main attraction, which is the music area. So sure. I use my amp and my pedals, all my stuff, and right over here is my microphone. And probably when we're done with this interview, I'll start recording. <laughs> well, you're already sitting there. You might as well use the time wisely, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Solo tour, band album. Uh, as a as a performing band in in Asbury for for really quite a time of change in Asbury. How how do you see Asbury having changed in the last six or seven years since you moved there? And and you're really sort of on the pulse as a performer. As you know, some of the clubs were able to sustain and stay open. Some clubs, uh, I'm still mourning the loss of uh, the Brighton Bar. Uh, how, how has Adsbury changed, in, in your opinion? All right, well, I want to tell you a little story, just because it made me kind of happy. I was out in western New Jersey with my best friend. We were coming back from something uh, and driving through New Jersey. We stopped in Stockton, New Jersey, which is kind of in the Frenchtown area. It's the woods. <laughs> yeah, and he just want, and he, we just stopped because he wanted cigarettes, and he didn't want to wait till we got back to it. He lives in Bucks County. Um, and so we stop, and I'm standing out in the car, and who rolls up to me on a bicycle but Scott Stamper, the owner of the state? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Scott, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> um, but him and Meg moved out there. 
Um, but the Saint is opening back up in a, in a couple of I'm weeks. very excited. It looked like it was coming down to the wire of would they be able to open or, or not. So I'm very happy that uh, they stayed open. Yeah, me too. I was happy to hear it, you know, because that was the first question I asked. And then the other question was like, what are you doing? <laughs> so they, But Stockton, is it still called Stockton State College? Or well, they- so that's a different. So Stockton State College is on like south. Okay. Um, but Stockton, New Jersey is this, this little, cute, artsy town in West Jersey, kind of getting towards the Delaware. And oh, that's interesting. Because, you know, there's an, a- <laughs> there's an Asbury, New Jersey, that's like 70 miles from here that, that when I saw it on the map, I thought I had, I, I was like, what's going on? It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, that's off of like 78, I think. You know, you drive out that way. So, so uh, What's changed about Asbury? What what's uh, what's different for you as a resident or as a performer? I mean, everything and nothing. You know, I, this town. I think um, it's going through its changes. As a lot of other towns are. Uh, I should have bought property. When I- <laughs> we all should have bought property ten years ago, right? <laughs> I got here, and everyone was like, "Asbury's never going to come back." And I could have afforded it when I first got here. Certainly can't afford it now. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, there's that. There's uh, gentrification with a capital G. Um, but it's also, I mean, where I live, it's also still a little wild. And, you know, I, I watch people do drugs outside of my apartment. So, you know, it's, it's this weird um, dynamic. Um, and as a performer, it's hard to say. Uh, I was hanging out with my friend who's old school, as old school. Uh, he was living here in uh, 2000. And there was much more art spaces. It was much more like art collecting kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ghost Harbor seems to be doing that again, which is awesome. Yeah. You know? Um, but then in terms of like gigs in town and, and things in town, like people know me, so I get the gigs. It's hard to tell up and comers what to do. Sure. You have to hang out here and network and make the appropriate contacts and build. You know, you're not just going to waltz into Asbury Park and pack the same, let alone any of the other places. Well, know? it's an interesting town on that level in that, well, it's certainly inclusive, wonderfully so. It's certainly diverse. Uh, but it also sometimes can be a little aloof if you're not from the neighborhood. You know, you kind of have to earn your Asbury bones when you uh, when you set foot in town. And there's an opportunity to earn it, you know. Um, and I, I felt I did. It took me eight months to get my first gig. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christine Fiola put me on the opening slot of the acoustic show that happened on like a Thursday night at the Wonder Bar. Sure. And um, I didn't suck. And from there, the gigs. Well, that's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then I got more offers. And then suddenly one day I woke up and I was in tow with the Enders. You know, there's a lot of opportunity here, but it requires dedication work. Um, you know, I guess that's sort of cliche but you know you really got to put the work got to put the time in well so many of us in high school and college daydreamed about being in a successful band and getting into the van and touring or or opening for a band like the pretenders or something like that what's it like to have achieved some of the dreams that so many thousands of other people couldn't do or or couldn't continue I, i would think there's a certain responsibility in that yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I hope I just want to keep writing great music and doing great things. I want to. I'm so happy to be vaccinated and to be doing things again. Mm-hmm. I just want to pick up where I left off. Um, it's funny though with the dream stuff. It's like I did the thing that when I first played those terrible power chords when I was 13 and wrote a song, and I was like, I want to open up for a famous band. I got to do it. Yeah. And it was beautiful and wonderful, and I will carry that in my heart for the rest of my life. But it's not enough. I'm like, okay, well, what's next? <laughs> well, that, that's that's the problem. Is once the gig's yeah. over, you're like, how, how do you go back to playing on a Thursday night and it's raining and only 20 people came out? I know. Well, you just gotta go back. You gotta you gotta just keep working. You know. Sure. What to do? You know. Keep <laughs> so, writing. Yeah. Uh, one of the last things I wanted to ask, and I asked this uh, to as many of the people who jump in on my podcast, uh, who's more important, the Clash or the Ramones? Oh, man. 
it's the unanswerable question, but I'd love to hear people's response. Uh, I find songwriters tend to be more of a Clash band, and rock and rollers tend to be more of a Ramones band, but I'd be curious as to your position. Strictly from my point of view, the Clash. Um, but that is a, that's a hard question, because, like, what are we talking about? You know? Sure. I mean, both bands broke things wide open, you know, for their genres and for what they were doing. They're both punk bands, but doing very different things. Sure. And the Clash getting very experimental, and the Ramones just writing solid pop punk, which became a huge genre that still goes on, you know. I, I still don't understand, and I, and I like lots of other sort of pop punk bands, but... I'm not sure how the singer from Green Day picks up a British accent whenever he sings. It sounds so uh, odd to me. Uh, you know, people pick up their affectations. Yeah, know. sure. <laughs> um, anyway, we've spent uh, the better part of an hour with Renee Maskin from Low Light. Uh, I could say I know 10% more about you than I did before. Um, was there anything I was supposed to ask that we forgot that you wanted to say? Oh, I don't think so. Um, Thanks for having me here. No, it's a real pleasure to chat with you. Um, Once I can get over this carpal tunnel, I'm going to bring my guitar over and we'll record together and and, uh, we'll be famous together on that level. All right. Oh, my God. I have so much guitar gear in this house. It's not even funny. I was never successful. Uh, Although I did get paid, my band, we made 30, about 40 bucks. We played at CBGB. It's a real paying gig. Ah, man. There you go. We took all all 12 people who came from Jersey to see us. We met at the Bendix Diner on Route 3, and we got cheese fries and Pepsis, and we, we blew our big paycheck on the cheese fries and Pepsis. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to keep an eye out on Mint 400 Records. Hold on a second. Anyway, we're going to keep our eye out on the Mint 400 Records on a solo uh, album, uh, on a low-light album, and... And you better start playing out soon because uh, I, I want to go back and I'll buy you a round of low light beer and we could talk more about your guitar. All right, we'll keep each other close. <laughs> Thank you so much, Renee. It was a pleasure chatting. <laughs>